Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, we are back with Eric Schwartz, who has been so gracious enough to give us a lot of detail about his life story and what he's been through and how other people can learn from that and what he's learned about all kinds of different things through his journey. So we're going to start back up with where we left off last time and then get into some more big picture items as well. So Eric, I think we were talking about how your gambling addiction had led to you to embezzle money from your company. So going forward from there, what happened? Sure. So I started the comedy club with uh, my best friend, Andrew. He's my best friend from high school and college. And his dad, they were my partners. And so they were beyond friends. They were close to family. And again, this situation where I, I made myself more of an individual that was had this me against the world mentality. And I remember I had, it was a, it was a Sunday. And I had, we had all of our, the revenue that had been generated from the comedy club over the weekend. And I think it was in the range of about Mm $20,000. And I took this money and went gambling with it. And I won. And not only did I win, I had to come back and get the money back in to the bank at the time that it was supposed to be. And I got it in there probably Monday afternoon and my my front office manager who normally did the deposits wanted to know what was going on with the money and i said oh i'm taking care of it and so forth and i got away with it by the skin of my teeth mm-hmm. and of course that made me think again i'm invincible i'm i'm almost like a james bond jason Bourne type individual look what i was able to to get away with and nobody knows and probably about three weeks later i took twenty eight thousand uh, dollars and lost it all and then all hell broke loose. My partners wanted to know what the hell was going on. And so that's the first time I tell them about everything. The so abuse. no one knew, like your professional colleagues here, even your best friend from when you were young, did none of them knew that you actually had a gambling addiction? That is correct. They, none, of, none of them knew. They knew, he knew I liked to go play, mm-hmm. but he didn't know that it was as, it, it nearly as bad as it was. I've been running this club for about two years. Yeah, about two years before this happened. So there were no issues. And because I had been gambling online and winning online and I didn't need that money and all of these things. And obviously uh, things ultimately come to a head. So at that point in time, they were livid. They told me I needed to go get help right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my, my problem. They didn't want to hear about it. Cut my salary in half to be able to pay back what I owed. And obviously I was incredibly disappointed in myself. I screwed up. This was a, a dream job for me. Mm-hmm. That really maybe the, the second best job I could ever imagine other than maybe playing center field for the Mets. <laughs> and so I knew I had irreparably damaged this relationship. It was just never going to be the same. My staff had much less respect for me. You know, everybody knew my staff and that just blew things up. And so a point in time came uh, about a, almost a year later, where I got the club solvent, we were up and running, we we're make, making 
you know, we're making money consistently now. And that's the point in time they decided to cut me loose. So they had already been, so they want to utilize my talent to be able to get the club where it needed to be. And then they said, hey, a decision's been made. And no matter what I said, they wanted me out. And I was furious about it. I was just livid. Mm-hmm. And, and so they gave me, you know, they gave me this buyout option over a number of weeks. And instead, I just took the last of the money that was there and got them mad, even madder at me. And then 13 weeks later, the club went under because it couldn't, it couldn't be run by anybody else, at least at that point. And so it was just a disaster altogether. But at the end of the day, all spurred by my, by my actions. So I could be mad at anybody that I wanted to be about they did this or they did that. If I hadn't been an asshole mm-hmm. and done what I had done, none of that would have come to fruition. And that just led me on a, a spiral of, again, I not only had ruined the, the job that I coveted. I just could, I could not believe I did that to myself, to my family. But now I destroyed relationships with people that I really, really, really cared about. And I couldn't even figure out a way to be able to express that with them really truly believing because they just weren't. So, you know, you're already, obviously you're already coping with what's going on in life by using gambling and then the gambling completely blows up your life. And I'm sure that sent you into a deeper hole than you were already in mentally because everything's gone. Absolutely. And I just had, I had no idea how I was going to, how I was going to cope. Sure. Everybody wanted me to go to rehab. Everybody wanted me to, everybody wanted me to get help. And I certainly knew I needed help. Mm -hmm. And what was, what was frustrating actually at the time was through that, when I first took that $28,000 from, from my job, I started going to a therapist, uh, but my insurance would only pay for four visits. That's awful. So that was a combination of the frustration of finally sitting down with somebody who really understood me mm-hmm. and knowing it was going to be so short-lived, but also just my impatience as a, as a person uh, who is compulsive and wanting any excuse that I could to be able to say, see, I tried and it didn't work out. So I'm going to go back to doing what I was doing. And so being able to throw in any obstacle that came in my way was, uh, it was a convenient excuse for me to say, well, I don't give a damn. Mm-hmm. Let's, let me just go back to the thing that's working for me, this gambling. It's, it's working at least in the interim or in the very short term. There's at least some relief there, even though it's for, a, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, and it is very short-lived. It, and, it, and it gets to a point also where I needed, a, at that point in time, I needed a certain amount of money to start with to make it worth my while anyway. I wasn't going to gamble with $200. Sometimes I would go long long periods of time without gambling, but it wasn't because I had suddenly turned over a new leaf. It just wasn't, I wasn't going to get the same rush. Just as like an addict needs a stronger, just a stronger shot of heroin or whatever crack I needed. If I didn't win a thousand dollars, if I didn't win 1500, it wasn't even worth my time. So yeah. So I would be scrimping and saving up or whatever, or waiting for this, this uh, opportunity to come here or there. And ended up, I went to work for a caterer and uh, was making, you know, decent money there, but nothing near what, what I was making running my own business. Mm-hmm. And just over time, you just fall back into the same patterns. I remember probably, oh, 10 to 12 years before it happened, one time being in a bank and saying, man, what, could I ever just come in like I see in these movies and just rob a bank and get fifteen, twenty thousand dollars and then I could go gamble, you know, it will I wouldn't have to be scrimping and saving to gamble, which is obviously a 
ridiculous way to think and going from, no, that's ridiculous. I could never do anything like that to, hmm, maybe I could do something like that. Or if I did something like that, how would I go about doing it? And in slowly morphing into the situation of going, hey, this is something that I'm going, going to try. I went online and I would read stories about different robberies and what went wrong. And it got to a point where I uh, was absolutely broke and just wanting to try to get out of that situation in one big fell swoop. And I would sit in a, in the parking lot of a bank and just sit there sometimes all day crying, trying to figure out a different path of life of how is it that I ended up where I was. I was a relatively good student in school. I went to a you know, major prep school in New Jersey. I was a senior class president. I was a national merit scholar. Uh, I had a very high IQ. I ran my own business that generated almost $2 million in one year. I had 28 employees that I oversaw. I ran the entire operation. I trained staff. I managed staff. I've been a a halfway successful comedian that won a few awards in that arena. And now here I am sitting in a parking lot, contemplating robbing a bank, taking money that's not mine on a you know, ridiculous level. I obviously had, had done it many times and knew this story and knew people saying, hey, you were going to either end up in jail or in the morgue through addiction and still contemplating that. So after doing it multiple times of sitting in different parking lots, I went to my mom and I told her how desperate I was about the situation. Mm-hmm. She really just didn't say anything. She just didn't say anything. And so I'm going to say something that I've never said before, but I, I just feel compelled to say it because I, I really do want to tell the entire truth of my story. So there are crimes that I've committed that I won't go into detail about that I've never been convicted for uh, because I do want people to understand that it is not a, it's not a one-off situation. People aren't caught the first time. Mm-hmm. They just aren't. No, that's definitely true. And so, you know, I, I really want to be as truthful as I, as I possibly can be. So back in 2014, I went down to uh, Bloomington, Indiana, and robbed a bank there, an old national bank that was inside of a Kroger, I believe. And when I got out of the car, I was thoroughly disgusted with myself before I I, I went into the bank. I just really was. I was so furious with myself. And yet I just knew at that point, the way I was thinking, there was no other way for me to exist. I got out of my car and I had my actual bank book from my own bank in my hand for some reason. And I said, oh, why am I holding this? Let me just throw it back in the car. And for some reason, I stuck it in my pocket. And when I went into that bank and robbed it, and I left the bank, it fell out of my pocket and fell right in front of the bank. And that's how I got caught. I was thankful to get caught. The next day, I took the money that I stole that day, which was probably a little bit over $2,000. I went to the horse track, off track betting in downtown Indianapolis Mm -hmm. and blew through that money the next afternoon and walked back to my car that was parked in the uh, parking garage And as I went up to my car and opened up the door, I heard, freeze, don't move. And I slowly turned my head to see eight police officers or eight eight officers from the U.S. Marshal Service Mm -hmm. 
pointing their guns at me. And I knew it was over. Uh, This was, I think, March 14th, uh, I'm sorry, March 12th of 2014. And they told me to back up, get on my knees, cross my legs, put my hands behind my head. And the moment that first handcuff went on, it was something that I had thought about many times, many, many times. And I'm hoping against hope that it's not for the reason that I'm thinking because I had, I knew I had a warrant out for driving on a suspended license, but mm-hmm. they don't have eight guys with guns on you for that. They're not marshals. Correct. And so they take me over to uh, Marion County Jail and they handcuff me there to a, like a bench or something I'm sitting on, that I'm sitting on. And I stand up and I just start thinking about it. And, and there was a certain sense of relief that it was finally over. Uh, but then all, all of the ramifications just started washing over me. My wife hearing about it, my mother hearing about it, my daughter hearing about it, what that was going to be. Everybody that I knew, friends and family, uh, fellow comedians, all the people that worked for me at the, at the comedy club. And I just became so mad at myself and started kicking the wall. And even though my foot hurt like hell, I just kept kicking it. And finally, they came over and said, hey, are you all right? And I'm, I stopped. And I just resigned myself to the fact that this cannot be the final chapter of my life. I said, I know I'm in awful shape. This is awful, beyond awful. But somehow, the path to me making something out of the rest of my life has to be with me finally telling my story. I had tried on a couple of occasions to look for, you know, do some outreach, uh, reach out to RAIN uh, mm-hmm. and some other organizations, sexual abuse organizations, to be able to find opportunities to be able to uh, get additional help and tell my story. And it just, I would get, well, we only do those once a year. We, you know, we have a gala or something. We only have a speaker once a year, mm-hmm. but we're happy to take your information, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, nothing was just coming about there. So once I was bonded out, my mother paid, put the money up to bond me out. I said, hey, I really am going to make a serious effort. And I sought out a, uh, a therapist. And what was great about it was the first time I sat down with her, she said, how is it that I can help you? And for the first time, I, the way that she put that really made me understand that whatever level of success or rehab or turning my life around was going to, was going to occur was really dependent upon me. Mm-hmm. And that she was just going to be a resource, that I was going to be in control. I was going I, I up until that point, I had looked at it like I did not have control over over my addiction. And finally, I started to recognize, no, no, I do have control over it if I'm willing to take that control, if I'm willing to put some processes in the place that are going to help me, not just in the moment, but more more importantly, before those moments occur. It really is about creating a, just a different way of thinking and a different measure of consistency for yourself so that when those emotions do stir up, you've got resources to be able to deal with them that are far more productive than gambling or any other uh, addictive measures. So I started going to, uh, you know, started going to those therapy sessions and, and thoroughly enjoyed those. And for the first time really, oh, what had happened, I'm sorry, mysteriously, what had happened was that at that point in time, Obamacare had been passed. Mm-hmm. And Obamacare allowed me to take unlimited therapy sessions 
mental health was now looked at as the same measure as your physical health. And literally that had been passed, I think a few months prior to seeking, seeking that therapy. Uh, so really, uh, you know, not to be uh, hi- hyperbolic about it, but uh, Obamacare saved my life. Because if I had not had those initial therapy sessions, I, cert- I would have fallen back into a situation that uh, I would have not been able to, to recover from. If I had a, so what had happened, let me move forward here, was because of those therapy sessions, I went through the courts for about a year before my court case came up. And several sort of fortunate things had happened. By that point, I had done enough therapy and my therapist wrote a, a very nice letter for me. Uh, my public defender uh, was very sympathetic and helped me navigate all of the uh, issues that were going on with the court. And then I had the great fortune to appear before a Judge uh, Teresa Harper, who I writ- wrote a letter to uh, her and also to the prosecutor about a two-page letter detailing my life, in essence, uh, distilling what I've told you so far today about the abuse that I endured, things that I had done in the past uh, regarding my addiction, and the measures that I was taking to move forward through therapy. And the fortunately, she had just come back from a symposium about the connection between abuse and addiction and was sympathetic to my story. And the prosecutor said at my sentencing said that, you know, when your case came across my desk, uh, I said, this guy has to go to prison. Mm -hmm. And he said, but based on what I've read, and he says in this letter kind of solidifies it, he said that, you know, I'm willing to recommend home detention. Wow. Yeah. So I was very fortunate to be placed on a two-year home detention because I really don't think I would have survived prison. I don't think I would have. I would have figure out a way to take my life or, or something. I already, I've contempl- contemplated suicide in so many different scenarios. And so was able to keep working. I got transferred to Hamilton County, which was a little different than Monroe County, very strenuous rules up in Hamilton County. And so I was, well, again, very fortunate for the opportunity. I looked at the fact of community corrections as being very uh, punitive, not as good in the, the rehabilitation side as, as they need to be. There's a lot, again, and many people are going to say, hey, you were fortunate, you got home detention. And I absolutely agree with that. I was very fortunate and very thankful for that. Home detention is no picnic either. It is very regimented in terms of when you're allowed to leave your house, how much time they give you to get back and forth to work. Very stressful. Things Your schedule cannot change at the last minute. You can't say, oh, they asked me to stay an extra hour or whatever. That's, that's, that's impossible. Again, I was trying to, working as a caterer, I was working multiple venues and trying to stay established in, in that business and, and earn a living. And to tell you a quick story there, I had, a, I had a client or a venue that I used to work at regularly in Avon, a nice couple that owned the facility. And, and I had been working for them for over a year and they liked the work that I was doing. And one Sunday evening was closing up and getting everything done that I needed to get done and get ready to leave. And the owner of the facility said, oh, she had this luncheon that was scheduled for the next day and she didn't have any help to set that up. Could I help her? And she was going to just need about 30 or 40 minutes of my time that I didn't have. Uh, I needed to get back home, (laughs) check in, I got my ankle, ankle monitor on, always hiding that carefully under my sock. And I didn't know what to do. I was stuck. 
I couldn't have that extended conversation with her right then and there on a Sunday evening. I did, she's a very nice woman in her early 60s. I didn't want to leave her and go. It seemed callous, like I could not help her. And so therefore I decided I would help her. And hurriedly did all the things she needed me to do, jumped in my car, driving ridiculously over the speed limit, 80, 85 miles an hour. Now I'm breaking the law, so I don't break the law. Yeah. And got home, I literally, within a minute or two before I was supposed to be there. And was just like, I can't, the stress of that and many other situations of being bound to a, a particular schedule is very difficult. The was drug and alcohol testing, mm-hmm. even though my situation had nothing to do with drugs or alcohol. I had to go through, uh, you're paying fines and fees because you're really paying for your own program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I ended up paying about between fines and fees and restitution, uh, paid a little over $16,000 wow. uh, that I really didn't have. You know, I'm, I'm again, now again, I'm, I wasn't making a ton of money, but I was doing, I was making more money than some of the other people that I knew were part of program who were, you know, just working at Arby's and things of that nature and wondering how is it that they're expecting these people to be able to pay for these programs that have very little money to begin with. And if you want them to stay off drugs, the thing that you would try to do for them would be to make their lives less stress-free mm-hmm. uh, rather than, and again, I understand there has to be a punitive aspect to this, but it seemed, and my feeling that seemed that it was, you know, 90, 95% punitive and uh, only about 5% redemptive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just found that to be very troubling. I remember asking a young lady who was my, uh, the officer who was my coordinator or counselor, I forget what the term was. I asked her, cause I was interested. I said, well, how many, how many, what percentage of people go through this program are successful? She had no idea. It hadn't, it hadn't even crossed her mind. And I thought to myself, this is your life's work or, or is it just a job? Is it, or I would think you got involved in community corrections cause it was, you know, you wanted a betterment of your community and sort of just to circle back real quick, the issue that I have, again, with all aspects of whether it's, again, the punitive sides of things or ultimately the rehabilitative side of uh, people with addictions uh, that I think we all as, as community-minded people want to improve is that the current mechanisms in place are awful mm-hmm. in terms of the results they deliver. And I don't think people realize how awful they are. Gamblers Anonymous is successful 8% of the time. Oh my gosh. Eight. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is successful about 10% of the time. And inpatient therapy is, is studies have shown have been successful in the range of 10 to 15% of the time. It's not, there is a better way that I think is more about prevention and awareness beforehand. Mm-hmm. Or that process of getting somebody to understand why it is they're doing what they're doing rather than sort of hitting them over the head with, you're a bad person, you're an alcoholic, you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. Or you're a gambler, you need to go to this anonymous place in this church basement that nobody's aware of and talk about this for an hour. It needs to be the thing that's at the forefront that somebody can talk about effectively, like any other malady that someone would have. Hey, I have, you know, I have lupus. Well, okay, I ha- I'm a compulsive gambler. Let's talk about our our individual issues that we deal with on that basis. And there needs to be the same level of access to care mm-hmm. and in order for the outcomes to be so, you know, to be so much better. Uh, right now, the way that is done, 
again, it's it's a thing, as you said, that people don't talk about. Or again, let's send so-and-so away to rehab. They'll be away for three or four weeks. This addiction that's been dogging him for 10 years will miraculously get better in four weeks by him riding a horse. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I, know. Ugh, I, I get that a little bit. In the context of the criminal justice system, I was a public defender for a long time. And then when I first went over to the prosecutor's office, kind of before I was in sex crimes, kind of just to learn how to be a prosecutor. I spent a few months in just low-level felony court. And so every time that I would see a defendant who had committed a crime that I thought had a mental health issue, a substance abuse disorder issue, anything like that, always that would go into the plea agreement. I'm like, all I want you to do is get help for whatever it is that got you to the courtroom today. And what sucked about it so badly is a, it was so freaking expensive. Most of them are like, I can't pay for that. And B, there really weren't any programs and certainly not very many programs where you could get in for free. And so it was extremely troubling to me because I'm like, they're just going to be back. Maybe not in this courtroom, but another courtroom or wherever this thing's going to keep going and going and going until, as you have said multiple times today, until you, figure out the actual cause. Instead of treating the symptoms, treat the cause. We're really, right. really bad at that. Well, you know, even given like the current movements of people talking about defunding the police, while I'm, I believe in certain aspects of that movement, I think the, the wording of it is just misperceived by too many people. They don't really understand what's, what's being discussed there. Yeah, so I don't know who came up with that wording, but they did a really bad job. Correct. So they, there needs to be, yes, there needs to be a reclassification of that because sort of just as an example, again, is that what people are willing to pay is they'd be willing to pay to lock me up or somebody else up. And they don't realize the cost of that versus the cost oh, yeah. of putting somebody through rehab. And so again, people, if you told somebody, Hey, we could create some rehab centers that would be community based as just the same way I've talked about a mental health center. If there was a place that people could go and they could get the help ahead of time, just to sort of make, you know, to be able to maintain, or you know, maintain a certain level of consistency in your life, rather than having these highs and lows of, oh, I went off on this weekend bender, or I went to Vegas and I blew $20,000. Those types of scenarios, and you, but people go, well, we can't afford that, but we can afford to build a new prison and pay whatever it is, 35,000 to 50,000 is what I've seen quoted to be able to house somebody in prison. And that person is completely unproductive in the entire year, they're sitting there you know, while they could be out being a taxpaying citizen and living their lives and so forth and still coping with the issues that they're dealing with. So at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just trying to be, you know, I've experienced it. I've gone through it. I've seen, as you said, while I sat in court for, on my own issues that had nothing to do with drugs, I watched person after person walk through and it was, they were going to drug court. Will you go to drug court? Will you go to drug court? And will you do this? And will you do this? And will you do this? And I'm saying to myself, again, nobody's having a discussion about, wait, hold on. How did this even occur? Why is it that you're on crack? I don't know anybody that's having a great day and goes, you know what? I'm going to start smoking crack today because ah, it's just something that I can have a slice of cake or I can eat some crack. You know, I can smoke some crack. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, when I've seen at least and other nations like the, the Netherlands and things where they're giving, you know, free needles or they're, they're giving people the opportunity to be able to sort of rehab in a far more open manner about it. And the success rates are so much better. Mm -hmm. I don't even, I can't even understand why we're not moving 
as a society, we're at least not moving in that direction. I think we definitely as a society have uh, like a myopic vision of it where it's just like, what's here, what's now? Okay, boom, done, moving on to the next. And it's like, well, if we take a second, take a step back, look at the bigger picture, maybe we can actually affect some positive change here and this won't keep cycling over and over and over again. But for some reason, we don't do that. Correct. You know, where we are, well, I'll admit we are a society where we're very insular and we only, we're only interested in what affects us or the people that are closest to us. Obviously, we're dealing right now with people wearing a mask or not wearing a mask issue and with people with the justification being about, well, I should be able to do what I want to do for myself and not having an understanding of even with that issue. Well, we're really talking about more about the effect that you may have on somebody else. And do you care about that other individual? And again, the, develop having that level of empathy for people, but also understanding that it makes good, just common sense or to be able to want to take, make sure that your neighbor is taken care of, that ultimately it is going to impinge on you. And so whether it was the crack epidemic of the 80s that didn't affect you, but now maybe the opioid epidemic of the 2000s that does affect somebody in your family, why would you want to see anybody else suffering? Or if, if you know, the things that I've been talking about, I believe they make economic sense as well and they generate better outcomes. So, you know, I wanted to be a win, win, win for everybody. But I've always said that if you told somebody on a number of levels, hey, can we give $5,000 to every, to every person so they could go to a community college or whatever and be able to take care of themselves, educate themselves, make themselves into productive people? And people go, no, we can't afford that. But if somebody came down and hit you upside the head, you say, lock them up. You go, yeah, but that costs thirty-five, fifty thousand $50,000 a year. You say, I don't give a damn. 20 years, put them in there, pay it, whatever. And so it's amazing where our mindset is in terms of what outcomes do we want at the end of the day? You know, what, where, where, how do we want this to, to play itself out? And so on the front end, we want to ignore a lot of the causes. And then on the back end, we don't want to acknowledge what we've been doing heretofore. This hasn't been productive. It is, yeah, it's a, it's a hear no evil, see no evil. Yeah, it really is kind of hard to wrap your mind around some of these things because it seems so simple to me and to you, but for whatever reason, other people just cannot see that. And, you know, we could talk about that all day long. Sure. But I think this is a good segue into some of these big picture items that I want to talk about, like these, these larger, broader concepts that we can see have played out within your journey. And honestly, all the interconnectedness of all of these different things. I appreciate that you brought up the point, the economic impact, because as we have talked about multiple times on this program, really the only way to convince some of these other people who just cannot see the light isn't through anecdotal stories. Sure, they think it's sad that things have happened to people. But what the bottom line is money usually in the data. The data is what change, changes minds. So I appreciate that you recognize that. I didn't even recognize that for a long time, but I was like, oh, duh, it makes sense. But beyond that, I want to go back a little bit and talk a little bit more about your family. Sure. Going back a little bit, what we're talking about with your family, and you made a very good point about how it was a little bit easier for you, you think, to be perpetrated on because your dad wasn't in the home and your mom was working all the time. And that is a very poignant thing that we need to talk about a little bit because 
I want to first say, I don't want anybody to listen to this and walk away from it thinking, oh, you have to have absent parents or not good parents for something like this to happen, because that's not true. It doesn't mean a parent is a bad parent if something like this happens. But what people do, what offenders do often is they do try to find someone who may have some vulnerabilities or maybe it's a little bit easier to prey upon. And that's why they do it. Might not be exactly what was going on with yours because it was, you know, a teenager who did that to you and within the family. But do you have any you know, message for people who find out something like this is going on in their family, parents maybe found like something happened. What, what do you think that they can learn from what happened within your family? Sure. So I, I went and I took a class to be, I wish I could remember the organization. It, it eludes me at the moment to, uh, but I know it was, um, oh, it was like the children's research center or something in, in downtown mm-hmm. Indianapolis. I took a one day class uh, to become certified to, and in, in, in being aware of, you know, the, the, how you need to set things up for your, for your kids in order to ensure, increase awareness and obviously ensure uh, prevention of, you know, your child being abused or molested. And one of the things that they talked about was, you know, to have a, have some more stringent rules about who, first and foremost, who it is that you allow around your children. Mm-hmm. That is that notion that, oh, okay, this is just a nice family friend or this is a relative or whatever that you allow to be with your child. Here's your most precious commodity in the world. You need to be do your level best and err on the side of caution as to who it is that you allow around your children. Obviously, again, at the moment or at the, let's say, point in time where your children really under, do understand the discussions about good touching and bad touching and so forth, and that their bodies are their own, that you begin having those discussions as well with your kids about what is allowable, what isn't, and make them feel supported and free enough to be able to come to and tell you about anything that's happening, that no one is allowed to have control over their bodies other than them. And I think for a lot of people, they may think that's a bit of overkill when you think of the downside or the consequences of not doing that, the potential consequences. Then you start to understand, okay, this is an area where you absolutely need to be as steadfast as possible and making sure that you're consistent with that measure. Not to the point where you want to scare your kids, but at least you're consistent about giving them a sense of who they are. And I think for a lot of kids that would build their self-esteem about boundaries and what people are allowed to do or are not allowed to do uh, to them. I think uh, more, we always teach people to use anatomically correct terms with their children and not use the cutesy terms because when they use like, you know, cookie or whatever it is, yes. that, I think that helps. So I think the offenders look for that kind of thing. But if Correct. you, offenders, you know, maybe starting to try to groom a kid and they're talking about vagina or penis, I think they're less likely to perpetrate on that child. I agree. I, I just think there needs to be a much more mature discussion about it. These conversations can't be so secretive or in the, in the shadows anymore. Mm-hmm. It's the Children's Bureau that I took the, uh, okay. the one-day class from. Um, another point that you made that is also one worth repeating is that people teach their kid about stranger danger. I mean, that's important. None of us wants our kids interacting with a stranger at the playground or wherever. That's scary. But the vast majority of offenders are someone known to the child already, whether it be a family member or a close family member or a coach or something like that, who has, and this perpetrator is typically 
been grooming not just this child, but this family for a long time. And then when they get to that point where they have that trust, then that's where they do it. And then at the, you know, on the other side of it, that's when everybody is like, Oh no way. It couldn't be that. He just would, he is a great guy. He wouldn't do that. And I've seen so many instances where people really didn't come around until they saw like tangible proof. The yes. child saying this happened wasn't enough, but then they discover that the offender took a picture of the child on their phone or something like that. And it takes that for those people to come around. And right. So, yeah. You know, you, yeah, someone needs to have, they need to have consistent access to you some somehow to be able to initiate something like that. And one of the reasons why I speak about it and hope that it encourages other people to do so, because uh, it really is a freeing experience. And I, I know for a lot of people that are going through this, they, yeah, I do want to say, but, but, but I, it's, you know, the only thing I can tell you is that it will, it will open up a lot of doors for you in terms of, and it will, it will make you more empowered, which is what you, what you're searching for, what we're all searching for all along. If a family has had a child who has experienced uh, some level of molestation or, or sexual abuse, I encourage them to seek out therapy for them and provide a, just a, the ability to listen. A lot of times without commentary, just to be able to hear someone and let them speak on how, you know, not only what you experienced, but how you're feeling about that, how you're feeling about it next week, next month, next year, whatever, whatever it is. And then fortunately, I was able to find a Prevail organization to help me talk a real little bit about my path there. So again, having wanting to always speak out about these issues and had in having sought out a couple of situations that really just didn't turn into any opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, I was really frustrated. And as a, as a stand-up comedian, I've been stand-up comedian for 12 years. It was very easy for me to get up in front of groups and talk. And so I was anxious to do this and to really put myself to the test. And so after numerous frustrations, I just went online and I was trying to find something out. And I saw an article that featured Christina Hale, uh, some of the work that she had done helping victims or survivors of sexual assault. And I reached out to her on Facebook and she responded and said, hey, you really need to go check out Prevail. They're in Noblesville. And I'm like, what's Prevail is what I'm thinking. (laughs) So I go online and I look at what they do and was, was shocked that there was an organization like that, and also that it was in Noblesville. I certainly expected to be right in a downtown of Indianapolis somewhere and down there fighting the good fight. And went and met their uh, director, Michelle Correo. And she, Michelle. she is a phenomenal woman. Told me her story and I was crying. We were there at lunch. I started crying right there. And then I told her my story and she started crying. And it was just unbelievable. I, I got up from that, whatever, hour and a, hour and a half going, then I'm, I'm on the right path. I finally, I finally feel like I'm in the right direction and was invited to the Prevail offices to take a tour and was just astonished at the depth and breadth of work that they do to help uh, victims of sexual assault and domestic violence of all ages and just the numerous different techniques and strategies that they had. And I just thought to myself, there needs to be a Prevail in every community this oh, yeah. the, the the amount of good work they do is just phenomenal and sad to say either i come across people who are familiar with their work and rave about them and will do somersaults about the work that they do as as i do or people that are completely oblivious to it and have no idea that they even exist and i got the opportunity to join their speakers bureau 
And when I went and met with Michelle, what was fortunate was that they had started a Speakers Bureau only about maybe seven, nine months prior, but they were really finally starting to move forward just as I had reached out to them. And I got the opportunity to speak in September of 2019, and that went really well. It was only about 40 people, but I, I spoke for probably about 45, 50 minutes, and I could have spoke for another half hour if, I, if, if they'd given me the time. <laughs> but I really enjoyed the experience as well as I could see in people's faces that they got what I was saying, uh, that they better understood what I was, you know, what I was going through after I was able to speak. And so I know there's just a world of good that can be done by me and other members of the Bureau. It's a very gratifying work just to be able to share my story and help educate others, or again, just be a resource of encouragement for people that have endured any measure of what I've gone through. And so I know what they're going through. I know what they feel like. I know they want to speak out about it. And they absolutely, they want to be believed and they really want to be heard every single thing that they're discussing. They're not, if to people out there who may know someone who's, who's going through something, I encourage you to, you know, tell them about my story and ask them, is there anything you could do for them? Or can I listen to your story? You don't need to comment on it if you feel uncomfortable or you don't know what to say. That's fine. But give them the opportunity to be able to share something with you that they absolutely have always wanted to share with you. They want to tell their story multiple times to the people that they care about, to the people that they share their lives with. They want to be better understood and appreciated. I really, that's such an exceptional thing that you're doing. And, you know, you've gone from victim to survivor to activist and using your experience to help other people. And that's certainly a courageous thing to do. There are two other points. We're, we're running a little bit low on time, but there are two other points that I want to make sure that we address here before we part ways because they're super important. I want to talk a little bit about your experience specifically as a male survivor and also as an African-American male. As most of us know, I think sexual abuse is the least reported crime that there is, but it even is more so for male survivors. And I think even more so than for African-American male survivors, why do you think that is? Sure. So, you know, when it comes to male survivors, there's just a way that boys were sort of indoctrinated over a period of time. I remember when I'd be out with my dad or something, you fall down, you skin your knee, you start crying. My dad was always like, hey, come on, stop that crying. Be a man, be a man, be a man. And you take a certain level of pride in not complaining, not moaning and groaning about a situation. Uh, just being somebody who, who is known to take control of the situation. And I think that's the position that a lot of men find themselves in, is if you have been abused, you're trying to take control of an uncontrollable situation. Mm -hmm. A situation that, you, that until you go through therapy and, and a multitude of other things, you don't even, you don't have the skill set, you don't have the tools at your disposal to, to be able to deal with these issues. So many idioms about men, you know, we don't like to go to the doctor, we don't like to, uh, we don't like to ask for help is because the way you've been raised as part of that quote-unquote definition of being a man is that you don't ask for help. You, you figure it out, figure it out, or you just suck it up, all right? Just suck it up, be a man. And so whether you're guys, uh, you know, play football or, or any type of sport exalted for playing with an injury, he's playing through it. He's gutting it out. He's being a man rather than, no, you know what? This really hurts. <laughs> and I'm going through some situation that requires more than just gutting it out. I, hey, let me raise my hand. I've been, I've been sexually abused as a child and it's destroying my life every single day. 
It's creating, it's created a mindset where I, I'm not thinking properly. It's creating uh, attitudes and behaviors that I'm not proud of, that I'm ashamed of, that I know are illegal. And yet, and still here I am, I'm trying to suck it up or gut it out rather than saying, no, 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 this is beyond me. Let me be that vulnerable individual because there's power and vulnerability, as Brene Brown says. And, you know, that's a unique concept to touch on, I think. I hope that's a mindset that gets discussed more and more about, no, no, the bravest thing you can do is get up and tell your story. Not be quiet about it. Not hide it. Not suck it up. Not, not go behind closed doors and only deal with it then. Is to get up in front of a group of people and be able to share that because we're all, to some measure, experiencing some sort of mental health issue. Mm-hmm. And to be able to speak on it effectively and give others the encouragement to be able to get up and tell their story, that's the biggest compliment that I could possibly get. As it relates to the African-American community, the history of this country and the 400 years that African-American people have been in this country leads us, sadly, to always be a couple of steps behind general Mm -hmm. society in terms of how we get the opportunity to move forward on social issues or move forward economically. You know, we've always just been at the back of the pack. It's so much so to a point that we, we often don't even, we don't even make ourselves a priority. Certainly anything related to our health, whether that be our mental health or physical health. I have family members, heart issues, diabetes issues, all types of things that again, have to go back to a certain level of psychology regarding our mental health that says that our life experience leads us to value our lives less than other people do. So it's not only, when I look at the current Black Lives Matter movement, it's not only an outcry to white people and people that are, and and people that aren't people of color, it's also a sort of, it's also almost like an inspirational chant to ourselves to be able to say, hey, we have to step up and we have to value our lives before anybody else is going to value. So it needs to be just some something sort of that we almost internal message that we have for ourselves. Because when it comes to discussing issues like sexual abuse, it almost falls into that as an African-American, it falls into that same category as being a male of you are taught as a black person growing up not to complain. Yes, yes, life is difficult for you. All right, yes, yes, you know you have it bad. All right, we got that now. Get out there. You still got to get out there and earn a living. Uh, stop complaining about it. It's not even going to be, you know, because nobody's listening. Nobody, nobody that matters is listening. Mm-hmm. And so it takes situations like the current movement mm-hmm. to be able to motivate enough people. And you can see by and large, when you see the protest out there, it is the younger people. It's the under 30 crowd it has the has the gumption and also has the open mindedness enough to say that, hey, when I do talk, I will be listened to. Older generation, sadly, like myself and people that are older than me, are very much a mindset of stop your bitching and moaning. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. Yes, we we rec- we recognize it's tough. Yes, now that we we've discussed that, let's let's just move forward. Obviously, I think the things that had happened to me back in 1973 had occurred now in 2020, it'd be a far different story. But I certainly know what I was experiencing back then. Sadly, no one was going to listen. Mm-hmm. Or if someone, if someone did listen, they'd say, well, okay, I believe you and I hear what you're going through, but you know, I don't know what else to do about it. What, what do we do? We take it to the police, the police can believe it. What do we, what do we even do at this point? 
it's a sad situation that because I look at it as a, a not only it's a health crisis, it's a mental health crisis, mm-hmm. sexual abuse and domestic violence that's going on. But if it's one out of every four girls and one out of every six boys that is being sexually abused, you know, you're looking at 70 to 75 million people yeah. that are going through, and we're not the majority, but we're by far the largest group of people that are enduring an almost unconscionable existence that isn't going to be solved with the, you know, wearing a pink ribbon or people doing a marathon race to raise money. It has very little to do with those types of solutions to be able to fix the problem. The first and foremost, it is the communication, obviously situations, podcasts like this. But as I said, it's got to switch from a podcast to a conversation that you could overhear easily at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And it has to become that commonplace. Agreed. And because I'm not only for help for the survivors, I, what I want people really to understand is this vicious cycle. I'm a survivor and I'm a perpetrator. And I don't like being either one. Mm-hmm. And, but I want people to understand how those two things work together. So when I see situations, I, I just want to touch on this briefly, like you say, the African-American community. So when I see a situation like a Bill Cosby scenario, and I want to say, absolutely, the story of the women is important. And I want to hear more about that. But there's another story about whatever happened to him that made him the way that he, the, that he was. That's the story that I want to get to. And if you want him to own up to the things that he's done, then you want him to tell his story. So that's what I wish would happen is somebody would go to Bill Cosby and say, hey, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about what happened to you. And they could break through to him. And then he'd open up and he'd talk about all the other stuff. The same with an R. Kelly, the exact same thing. <laughs> I think that's a really important point to make because I think that people have a really hard time just for all these reasons that we've talked about in this conversation and whole people have a hard time talking about this stuff, but people have an especially hard time talking to someone who is perpetrated upon someone else. And the thing is we actually do, somebody needs to be having those conversations with those people because we have to understand why that happened. What led that person to be in that place and do those things? Or, you know, certainly if they're a serial predator, we need to know more about that because as, as we continue to not know much about that, then it it's easier for people to do that to children. So Correct. definitely an important conversation that has to be had as well. Sure. Really quick. I saw when, uh, when they had the Gail King interview with R. Kelly and I'm sitting and I'm watching that and she asked him, she said, do you think that your childhood sexual abuse had anything to do with it affected you in any way? And he goes, uh, no, not at all. And she goes, not at all. He goes, well, maybe a little. And I thought to myself, you're myth- that is the story right there. We w- we'll get to all the other the sensationalism. But if you can't even follow up with him on those questions, actually ask him about the abuse. Get him to open up about what actually occurred. Trust me, if you, if you open that can of worms up, he would have to. He is already compelled to be able to, to talk about his story and the bad things he's done. Everybody wants to talk about that. And sadly, this is not a joke, but like in his music lyrics where he goes, my mind is telling me yes, but my body's telling me no. That he is literally trying to tell you what's going on with him. It is not, it is, it's not a coincidence. He wants to be able to tell his entire story, but until he can tell the first part of his story, effectively he will never tell the second part of it he will never own up and open up to that and that's the way to go i didn't want to talk about the, you know abusing three people 
But first and foremost, I just had to make sure that I told the beginning part of my story and that people got that, you mm-hmm. know, and it took me a while to be able to work in that. It's still a work in progress for me. Of course. It's very brave. I appreciate it. We've talked about a lot of stuff. Um, is there any, you know, parting words that you have for anybody listening, any advice, any tips, you know, anything that you just think is important to share before we sign off? Sure. I would encourage everybody to go to the Prevail website, whether you're a victim or not. You certainly know somebody who's a victim, whether you actually are aware of that. That's the point of it is I want people to understand how prevalent this is. And if, especially if you know anybody in your life, anybody, friend, family member, coworker, who has some sort of addiction issue, I encourage you to discuss this conversation with them and just be able to go to them and say, hey, do you mind my asking when it is you first started abusing whatever it is that they're abusing? and ask them to tell you that story. You will get such a better, you know, I'm not gonna say that it's gonna open up to you right on the spot, but any stories that they tell you will give you such a better understanding of them as a person. And it will reveal things about yourself and give you additional insight and develop a level of empathy in you that heretofore you didn't know that you had. And it's something that's so important. It's of benefit to you at the end of the day. It's gonna help them tremendously, but it's also gonna help you in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. It's a very important point. I appreciate that. And Eric, just thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and have this conversation with us. The information you have imparted is absolutely invaluable. And I appreciate that you're not just talking about the positive parts now, you know, where you get to go out and help people, but you walked us through all of the things and all of the havoc that's been wreaked upon your life that dates back to something that happened when you were six years old. I think that helps people to understand things better. And as we have said many times in this conversation, that's how we move forward is people to understand what this actually looks like and what we need to be doing to combat it. So thank you very, very, very much. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for the time. I I really enjoyed it. Good. Uh, And thank you to our listeners tuning in here and sharing the podcast with friends and families, how we continue to help important people like Eric get their message out there. Nothing more important than that. That's how we learn. As always, submit any questions or requests for guests to supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you. And we will see you next time.